mechanism. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Fundamentalists Podcast. I don't know about you, but I sure am enjoying these weekly uploads. Look at us being all consistent. Pete, isn't that great? I'm loving it, man. We're back. We're going to be like big as Joe Rogan and Lex Freeman soon. Yeah, because it's the same sexy topics like today's episode, which (laughs) is specifically uh, on postmodernism. Now, uh, here's a little fun fact. I like Mm -hmm. to use words that make me feel and sound smarter. And postmodernism is definitely one of those. And I enjoy uh, uh, throwing it about haphazardly with very little regard for how accurately I'm using it. And that is kind of consistent with a lot of the things that I say and and do just throughout my life. And so I thought, Pete, we could talk about what is postmodernism and when did it become so popular? And is it as popular as it used to be? If not, why? If so, why? And you are like the best person to talk about this because you studied post-structuralism which is identical to postmodernism, almost, except it is a philosophical. And that's just, that, and then there's the po- and that's all I know. Yeah, well, you're, and this is why you made me nervous because you literally texted me and go like, "Why don't we do postmodernism?" Because you have done your PhD in this, and I'm like, "Oh crap! That means I'm supposed to really know what I'm talking about." And I wrote no. that PhD 30 years ago. Yeah, you, um, <clears throat> yeah a long time. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, it'll all come back to me. It's like riding a bike. Um, and I definitely yeah. can talk about the, the core elements. And actually, oh, you know, actually, there's loads of stuff. Now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, oh, there's okay. loads of things we can say. say. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, like, can you even say it's like riding a bike? Like, does a bike even exist? Or is it just a product <laughs> of, like, circumstances and where it was at the time that it was created? That's true. And bicycle, that could be the cards, poker, it could be something you cycle with. And yeah, there's all of these signifiers. Yeah. And yeah, yes, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, it's a the cycle thing, that goes both ways. The, the other thing that we might talk about is, do you, I'm sure you know about this probably better than I do, but the this interesting theory that's very popular on YouTube that uh, Marxism became postmodernism uh, and then became identity politics. And it kind of went from the French Academy, really actually from the German Academy into the French Academy, and then from the French Academy into America, and is kind of responsible for identity and ide- identity politics and identitarianism. That's interesting because that really caught a lot of uh, attention. And that's held by people like Jordan Peterson and um, other people, I think, who you know, are more in that, in that group. That's interesting. Yeah, I find that quite interesting because my understanding is that the idea of, say, a postmodern neo-Marxist is inherently contradictory because Marxism says that there is one underlying universal problem that is causing our things, and our problems, and then postmodernism says there is no universal truth, no, no underlying essential grand narrative or am i incorrect yeah no um so there is you're you're right there's a there's a tension there between marxism and postmodernism that is overlooked by and i was trying to look up was it james Lindsay? that's right i remember his name james Lindsay. because i have a secret yes i have a secret 
enjoyment of James Lindsay. You have your enjoyments uh, that we shall not speak of, and I have my enjoyments. Yeah. Some of them we shall not speak of. But one of them is uh, Lindsay. I haven't actually watched him for a while. That's why his name escaped me. But he's interesting because I, he actually reads the stuff. That's what's interesting to me about him is he's actually read the people that he critiques. And, and so I respect that. And so I listened, I've listened to a lot of his stuff because he does say some, I think he gets a lot of it wrong, but as I say, he actually reads it. It's like a lot of people don't read postmodernism. A lot of people critique Derrida who have never opened a page of Derrida. Uh, but with Lindsay, when he, whenever he critiques someone like Harbert Macuse or Gramsci or any of these figures, he's actually read them. And he goes in for this argument um, again, it's, it's a bit rusty, but I'm pretty sure, yes, he does, that basically uh, Marxism became untenable in the 20th century with the atrocities of Stalin. Uh, and then Marxism basically filtered into cultural critique, so from economic critique into cultural critique uh, with the Frankfurt School. And then this cultural critique kind of moved into this idea of just the of oppression and oppressor and this kind of Foucault thing where everything is power and domination and resistance and then this filtered into a kind of relativism where all you have is a fight of the powerful against the powerless and you know we end up where we are here so that's kind of like even someone like James Lindsay or he, you know defenses but what I was going to say yes is that the truth is you can kind of make the argument. When I listen to this argument, I can see how you could make the links. But it's like building a house and every brick is a little dodgy. And each one yeah. on its own, you can be forgiven for, but eventually you build a very dodgy house. And one of the things that you brought out there is very true, is that kind of Marxism, well, Marxism is a very particular critique. It's a critique, it's the idea that we live in a society that creates something called surplus value. And that surplus value is created by workers, but it's appropriated by people who are not doing that labor. And so it's in, that sacrifice is enjoyed by the owners of the means of production. This creates alienation. This creates uh, cycles of poverty. And so that, that's, that's it very in a nutshell, but that's what Marx is interested in. Uh, Postmodernism, as you say, is incredulity towards meta-narratives, is the famous phrase by Guy Lyotard, which means like postmodernists don't generally like grand narratives like Marx's grand narrative about economic oppressions. So anyway, sorry. So yeah, there's a, there's definitely a, a tension. And, and I was in the middle of that when I was doing my PhD. I was in a department that was very Marxist. And then I went into a department that was very postmodern. So I kind of, I, I was in two departments that were kind of at war with each other. So you're one of the first postmodern <laughs> neo-Marxists. Yes. <laughs> and, well, okay. you know, and, and you know, yeah, you know, like some of the truth of someone like Lindsay and, and Peterson is that all the postmodernists were reading Marx. But that's because every academic in Europe, you, you know, Marx, you read Marx, like it's just kind of one of the great thinkers yeah. whether you agree or disagree so there is a sense in which yes Derrida even wrote a book on Marx um, uh, Spectres of 
uh, specters of Marx, I think it was called. And uh, so they were all engaging with it and they were, they were all Marxists of a type. So there, there was a connection, but also a lot of, uh, a lot of internal fighting. Um, boy, I tell you, I, I, I did zone out there for just yeah, a sorry, second. Sorry, I know. And I do. <laughs> but I will say that you did such a good job, Pete. You said it was going to be like riding a bike, and look at you. That was incredible. <laughs> you're doing, you're coming up with book titles and off the top of your head. Uh, uh, so in terms of the history of it, I mean, you would have been, this would have been what, the 80s that you were doing this? That you were doing 90s. I think I from the nineties and two thousands, actually early, early, early two thousands, late nineties, I think, yeah. And so my understanding, what I, I'm curious about is the my understanding is that it peaked in the eighties, seventies and eighties was sort of postmoderns modernism's heyday, and it still exists in the imagination of people today, maybe perhaps bigger than it actually does in academia. And but during that time, 70s, 80s, and I imagine still in the 90s a good bit, it was like all the rage. And so now it seems like the critiques of postmodernism have sort of battered it down. It's not really it's like used still, but it's not this um, itself a grand narrative like everybody was like obsessing over it for a while. Being like everything can be explained through this or not explained. I don't know. It's all very um, I, I'm curious about why it's. And also what your view is on it. Like, do you think that postmodernism is, are you a postmodernist still? And if you were to like, if you were new to it and you were to read it and be like, okay, I'm postmodernist. Yes, that makes sense. Like, what is your kind of feeling toward it? Yeah. And on that, like a lot of the critiques of postmodernism, because it's been very, it's very popular at the moment to critique it. Um, is, is often it's used as another way of saying relativism. Uh, and that, I would definitely critique that notion. So I am not, I wouldn't call myself a postmodernist now. I kind of probably was a postmodernist or poststructuralist when I was doing my PhD. Um, and then I kind of moved moved away from it. And um, But I have a lot of affinities with it. So if I was to, if I was to try to, to define postmodernism in a nutshell, which might be a good place to start, um, I mean, postmodernism, like a lot of continental philosophy, is interested in what cannot be said, what, what remains unsaid when we speak, uh, what is, what, what, the word could be what insists, not what exists, but what insists, what um, this dimension uh, that, you know, religion has always been interested in, religion has always been interested in what is not reducible to the material, right? So postmodernism is interested in that. And one of the key ideas for, with Derrida talks about is that language is always open to the future. Uh, whenever you use a word like hospitality or justice or love, these words, we understand them and we can kind of articulate what we mean by them. But there's something about those words that is still to come. Like, you know, like the Messiah, there's a, there's a messianic dimension. And what that means is your notion of justice, if you think you know what justice is, you are going to become unjust, right? So every, everybody, every time someone says, I know what freedom is, I know what justice is, I know what liberty is, and they, what's called, they call it totalizing in philosophy. They totalize it. They say, I've got it. I know exactly what it is. 
There is a way in which justice becomes unjust, freedom becomes unfreedom, liberty becomes slavery. And Derry wrote very beautifully about how some of the language that we have is eternally open to reinterpretation and re-understanding and we can never close it off it's like that buddhist thing if you see the buddha on the road kill him it's like if if you get justice kill it right because justice is always to come justice is always still to arrive yeah. how does that apply to are you saying that applies to specific words or all words um you could say that it applies to language in general, yeah. Like the dumbest <laughs> question. Do you mean all the words? Uh, <laughs> all the <laughs> language. Except uh, for two. About, There's two words that don't. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Balloon and Hippopotamus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to get as far as you're going to get. Uh, uh, so <clears throat> how is hospitality always coming? How is that? Is it always, is there always a new thing to learn about how to be hospitable to your neighbor? There's always the, in life, there's always, is this sort of like a, a nice, um, like, m not morality play, but a kind of like, well, you know, there's always, there's always something right around the corner that's going to change. Is it kind of like that? Like, it's less about, I don't get it. I don't get it. Okay. Well, imagine almost like, say, in the world today, let's imagine there's like a hundred different ways in which cultures show hospitality. So in some cultures, it might be you know, you feed the person for some, it might be that you bring them out for a drink or whatever, but lots of these all these cultural different ways of showing hospitality. Um, all of those, when you bring them together, they don't totalize hospitality. It's not that if we get all of the different ways throughout all of history that people have understood the word, we'll have a, a full notion of that definition. There's a sense in which all of them share something. They have, uh, it's like a language game of, in, in uh, vintage time, maybe call it. There's, there's something they share in common, but uh, they don't exhaust hospitality. There's always new ways in which it could be shown, to, uh, which could manifest itself. So that's what, and that's the promise. That's the, that's the messianic dimension of hospitality is never think that the way you do hospitality is the way, and in fact, if you think it's the way, you might end up doing violence. You might end up in your desire for showing hospitality. Um, if you're not open to the promise, if you're not open to rethinking it, reimagining it, reinterpreting it, uh, it may become its opposite. Yeah. It's like when my, uh, I grew up eating venison, and my folks, uh, uh, which is code for deer, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, just in case a lot of people don't know that, um, time Bambi. for time for me to give you some knowledge, Pete. Uh, and yeah. venison means deer. And sometimes my current wife is not a fan of. She did not grow up eating venison, as I did. But it's a very lovely hospitality thing to make dinner for people. And so it's you know, yeah. Uh, my parents' version of hospitality includes, of course, have this delicious venison. I say, oh, what a lovely thing of venison. But maybe other people are like, mm, that's deer. I don't want to eat deer. Um, and then I go, no, you're going to eat it because that's what they're being. They're being nice by giving you that, that venison. Um, and then I, it has. It, there's a force feeding thing that happens. And then there's a <laughs> yeah. lot of like throwing up. But um purging but besides that, i think i get what you're saying is that is that correct do i understand postmodernism now 
That's perfect. And well, actually, overeating is a very Irish way of showing hospitality. We force food on people and you know ask multiple times and i'm sure there are cultures that are the opposite where you show hospitality or you show you show respect by 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 eating very little or something i mean that's the thing it's all will manifest itself in all sorts of ways and uh and and that's that's kind of a symbol of language of all language language we never are able to articulate ourselves completely that's why you want to write another book if you're a writer you 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 want to do another mm -hmm. podcast because you're like we didn't really say it all there there's this there's this openness to discourse openness to language and for dairy to politically and this is a really interesting political position is that that we should all kind of have fidelity to the justice to come, to the hospitality that we do not yet know, to the freedom that we don't know. And here's key, and this actually is a good callback to our Chomsky-Foucault episode, because in that episode we talked about how Chomsky kind of feels like he knows what justice is uh, and what it looks like, and Foucault kept saying, all we can talk about is kind of what's unjust now and a promise of justice, but as soon as you kind of name it, you potentially are going to get into trouble. So Foucault there, as a very important post-structuralist, is you're, you're seeing this idea of, of a fidelity to freedom and to justice and to beauty and to hospitality, and at the same time, a humility about how you concretize those terms. Um, did you hear that real loud beep just a second ago? I didn't know. Weird. One of those. Anyway. Um, okay. So this reminded me of a book I read called The Alchemy of Discourse by Paul Kugler. And it's a, he's a Jungian guy, but he did this whole, really, it's not about the book. I need to read it again. I really did like it. But the cover shows um, one of those diagrams like you're talking about where you, you have the word and then it branches off into another word, which branches mm -hmm. off into another word. And it's all of these sort of associations that get clustered around a particular word, but there is no like it's like have you how you say before or have said before that the um if you know the dictionary is made up of definitions but each definition is made up of a another word so it's like circular did we screw up when we made the dictionary should we just never had dictionaries before yeah i heard just how, yeah. Case before. <laughs> i mean you uh, kind of you anyway, almost so, want a, a dictionary with with the you almost are looking for a word that's not connected to other words but that's very postmodern. what you're saying is that words just connect to other words they, there's nothing in the dictionary that connects to reality you know whenever you get to rock yeah there's not a rock it's just another set of words that's yes yeah, so that web of language um post-modernists take very seriously try to understand what that means and from a lacanian perspective this i would imagine would fit in because it's about language and it's about that lack that occurs between the actual rock and the definition of the rock is that correct yeah and so there's a slight difference and i'm i'm more lacanian than derridean so this and the slight difference is that because uh, both are interested in this idea of of lack oh and i'll give you one very beautiful derridean example of this first of all is you know derrida says that uh whenever you're trying to be just uh, you write laws, a society creates laws, and those laws at their best are attempting to express what justice is. But laws never express what justice is completely. That's why we're always having to develop the law, and it, it, it changes over time. It doesn't change like 
willy-nilly. It's, it's, it's sediments. But then new cases come along and sometimes laws are changed. And then Derrida says, so the laws that we make, the concrete material laws that we make, are never just. They never reach justice. But we would never even be able to conceptualize justice without the laws. The laws are the only way in which we touch justice. So weirdly, uh, while the law always fails to be just, it is precisely through our fidelity to the law that we have a sense of justice. And he calls that the undeconstructible. So Derrida is known for what's called deconstruction, and people critique him for that. But later in his work, he said, but there is something that's undeconstructible. And it is the promise of, that's in hospitality, the promise that is within justice. And it's a, it's a very beautiful image, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, um, yeah, you can't get rid of the fantasy that it's, that it is, you are on your way toward it in some idea, in some sense, I guess. Yeah. Man, I am just, my words are not coming out today <laughs> the way that they should. Gosh, I apologize. It's just like pure frenetic, uh, energy, but anywho, um, when people hear the term postmodernism, Pete, and they, they, and you're, as you were saying, it's all relative. Like they use it in place of mm. the word relativism. It's yes, sort of relative. like, here's a fancier way of just saying, like, you don't really believe in anything because anything is all, you know, that clip from Wolf of Wall Street with Matthew McConaughey when he's going, it's a flimsy, it's a floozy, it's a fairy <laughs> dust. It doesn't exist. It's my favorite, one of my favorite lines of all time. Yeah. Uh, but that kind of, I think, is like the, postmodernism also in a nutshell of just like this is everything is all made up and so therefore if you believe in this stuff you don't have any leg to stand on in any kind of argument or in any kind of decision making capacity because you don't have it and then you have this sort of like much more then it goes into the conservative liberal thing and then the postmodernists mm-hmm. are the relativists who tend to be on the liberal side and then the conservatives are the more well, I guess would be essentialist or something would that be they're definitely not postmodern. What yeah. would be the alternative yeah. to essentialism? I guess the alternative and, to postmodern would be any. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, essentialism is a good term for it. Like, um, and also, yeah, because there's some people who, go, who say like, like scientific realism. Like, when we speak about reality, words touch, words hit reality, and um, which is, I mean, it's a very like words are fascinating. Like, because what is the relationship between what we say and what is out there and that's a big and interesting topic and I, and i think yeah. you can answer it but it's it's definitely not an easy one but some people on one side say well when i talk about a rock i'm talking about and i i can point at something i can point at reality so my words give me access to reality and then some people say no your words actually separate you from reality the, your words are a type of uh, uh, a wall that that blocks something um, and then, and then sometimes TC postmodernism is that. Yeah. Which do you, which do camp do you fall into? Well, obviously, I wouldn't go into either of those camps, kind of, because those are your two, kind of basic okay. camps. Well, but but um, you know what I what I would there's uh, Simone Weil had a beautiful analogy for language, which was um, imagine two prisoners in cells side by side, and there's a wall down the middle, and they tap on the wall to communicate. The wall is both what separates them and also what allows them to communicate. And 
you know, that's what language is for Ve, is there, it's a wall that separates and joins. <laughs> and uh, one has to yeah. figure out how to, you know, w what that means in a technical sense, but there's a sense in which um, uh, it, it, it divides and it also connects. I, but, but I would say, what would I say? Um, I suppose I would say this, and this is why I'm not a postmodernist as such, is I think that the the thing that you cannot communicate, the, the dimension... You're doing a great of, job. Yes. This is <laughs> yes, great. thank you. Yes, I'm, yes. the <laughs> dimension within language that, that cannot be spoken is, um, is actually part of reality. Um, it's, that's actually our inability to understand ultimate reality is because ultimate reality doesn't understand itself. So there's something about language that is actually reflective of the very nature of reality. So it's not that we are separate from reality speaking about it. We are, we are reality speaking about itself. And then that, 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 that brings you into an interesting uh, way of trying to understand how reality fits with language. When you say that there's something about uh, the nature of reality that's structured like a language. Um, if that makes sense. Do you yeah. um, do you do you enjoy poetry? Not a lot. I do occasionally. Funnily enough, I was looking up a poem by uh, uh, Pablo Neruda. Is it Neruda? Recently, but no. Generally, I don't read much poetry. Why do? You, yeah. What's your? I, I don't. Well, I was just thinking about language and the sort of getting into the poetry and the music, and you know, you can I can listen to a rap or a pop song and feel something that isn't that i'm i'm reading into the lyrics of whatever they might be but then i was just thinking about poetry in general and how it sort of elicits all of these emotions that are different from just linear language and so i'm wondering if you think that that is still um more like proof of what you're talking about because it shows that there's so much there's an abundance behind the language or if it is if you specifically are talking about our everyday communication like if it's just prose or whatever yeah. well yeah i i would want to say that actually poetry might show the truth of it more easily um but there's something about all language even the most scientific language that is eternally open um and and the reason why then i think the, the critique of relativism is wrong here is because at that stage someone might say well is everything poetry not you can never fully grasp something there's always this possibility of reinterpretation but uh, for someone like Derrida, um, knowledge accumulates through this constant openness to the future. And it is true that every theory and every knowledge uh, system has within itself the ability to be critiqued and be uh, rethought and reimagined. Um, but it's not that it's not that none of it means anything. Derrida is very clear. It's not that law doesn't mean anything. Law is our access to justice, you know. So, so Derrida is really trying to understand how is it that we can know certain things and say certain things, and yet, uh, and yet there is a really an an eternal dimension to something like the scientific enterprise that just never ends. And he's trying to kind of conceptualize that. But I do understand that a lot of people and a lot of these posts, Foucault, I was never a huge fan of Foucault and his work, like he basically 
when you read him, he will tell you the history of something like Discipline and Punish, one of his books. He, he articulates the, um, the history of Discipline and Punishment uh, and how it was horrific. You go back far enough, people are hung, drawn and quartered. He starts the book with this guy who tries to kill a king and is tortured to death. And then he just charts how from there we get to modern schools with bells and rows of seats. And, and he kind of he charts it and shows everything comes out of something else. Everything, But he kind of, he, he, what you basically get from Foucault is this notion that there's no, there's no truth to anything. There's just a kind of like a genealogy of which something that we think is true is just constructed the way we do schools that we think, oh, that's the way you should do education, actually has this crazy history. Um, anyway, so, and I, you know, I think that, I think Foucault is the one who a lot of people are attacking when they say postmodernism is relativistic. What um, did postmodernism itself come out of? Oh, well, interestingly, kind of, in philosophy, what, uh, structuralism, that's why it's called post-structuralism in philosophy, because it came out of structuralism. Um, and structure and i'm more of a structuralist structuralists are uh was a rose out of linguistic theory um guy saussure and i am getting too theoretical here well, <laughs> uh, but yeah but, that's real okay uh i was just, yeah i meant like con contextually societally culturally what was going on that like because you I mean, know it's the 20th century you got a couple oh. world wars you got uh like the decimation of people and then i think of also the idea that like everything's going to work out great because they had two world wars back like basically back to back um and so i'm imagining that had some kind of disillusionment that led to something like postmodernism. yes no that's very true there was there's a there's a cultural milieu where in one sense these massive what they call meta narratives these grand stories of how reality works uh started to become horrific and started to kind of like, so like, you know, Marxism becomes, you know, like you see Stalinism and you see, you know, you see fascism. Uh, you also see uh, logical positivism. You see a form of um, uh, treating human beings, psychologism, where we treat human beings like Pavlov's dog, you know. But these, these grand narratives of like, say, fascism and, and Marxism, whatever, there was a definitely this sense in which these had all started to be horrific and problematic and so this idea of in incredulity towards meta-narratives was a way of saying hold on a second maybe these totalizing ways of seeing the world are the problem like when you have a totalizing lens through which to see the world this causes totalitarian conflict so yeah that's maybe the cultural milieu okay. that you're talking about yeah what do you think was the cultural milieu that led to the decline of postmodernism? What made people go, uh, like, now they're still arguing about it, and I get that, but, like, why the return to grand narratives? Yeah, and that's really interesting, because that's kind of what's partly happening. And um, there is a sense in which, like... I do see why people see postmodernism as flirting with relativism. I am critical of postmodernism because of the way that it critiques grand narratives. Um, I, I think we can um, uh, 
kind of have more stronger notions of of of, of what to do in the world. But um, yeah. It's interesting because some people say that you've got on one side intersectionality, fourth wave feminism, that's really, really uh, where postmodernism is still alive. And then you have uh, people on the right who are very much, uh, you know, in, in favor of universality, of, a, of a, what I could call a positive universality, meaning... Um, uh, we can know things that are like meritocracy. We can create a society that that is based on rational foundations that are uh, that that are beneficial to all. So you kind of got that battle going on at the moment. Um, Where do you fall on it? What do you think on that? What do you think? Pete? Uh, yeah, tell yeah, us the truth. So, okay, I I would say right. You've got. Let's let's go with that, and I'm going to use right and left. If I hate those terms at the moment, but people sure. who maybe are sometimes associated on the right, you could say that they affirm a positive universal, which means people on the right tend to go like there's you know something like facts don't care about your feelings, which is like you know facts are universal, they're true, wherever you are, whoever you are, and we can build a society, and we and have a society often where actually rationality and universal principles of justice and merit kind of operate they're not they're not perfect they'll say they're not perfect but these are good things then you have an i kind of ident, identity politics critique of that which says that beneath all of these supposed universals that are disinterested like meritocracy they actually benefit some people over others and some groups over others so this is the eternal battle between those two is one takes great joy and showing that the other side uh, implicitly has to believe in universals, right? You know, in order to argue. And the other takes real pleasure in showing that beneath these supposedly disinterested ideas of justice, there's actually um, a privilege to some people and there's a de and detriment to some other groups. I advocate for what's called negative universality. This is the third step. Negative universality is, yes, every positive universal is can be deconstructed but 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 there is a negative universal which is we are all lacking subjects and that's what unifies us so nice um so i had a thought and it is right here it was about the um let's use 9-11 as an example in the post 9-11 world and um a lot of the stuff going on right now, I was watching some leftist commentators and I, I realized, I was like, what's going on here? I was like, because I agree with these these people politically for the most part. Um, I was like, but something is missing that I think is like not that the left is getting in its communication pretty wrong. And I was like, I wonder if it's like that rage or that emotion that people felt after 9-11 or after they feel after some grand act of injustice it isn't oftentimes given a voice on the left, which instead goes into this very political, like maybe intersectionality is the wrong word, but it's like goes into all the historical context, all of the way of, of understanding how this happened in like a cause and effect yeah. kind of way. And I think that's all great, great. But then I'm like, what, where does that emotion go? Like, where does mm -hmm. the emo the feeling that you have when you see or hear about something that is unjust uh, it's like it gets almost ignored oftentimes by those who seek to just harp on the context. Does that make any sense? And is it related to what you're talking about? 
Yeah, I mean, this is, um, if I hear you right, which I, I think it's very important, like if, if Todd McGowan wrote a book, Enjoy, Enjoying Right and Left, and in that book he kind of argues that you know, there is there is enjoyment that is can be described as of the right and enjoyment that can be described as of the left. And enjoyment of the right is what he would call um, scapegoat. Well, no, what he, well, he, what he would call non-contradictory enjoyment, where you have to have a scapegoat. There's a there's a something happens and you need someone to blame. And there's real enjoyment yeah, in that in order to be able to right. But they're bad, right? So he thinks that's reactionary enjoyment. By definition, that's always kind of reactionary enjoyment. But then he talks about emancipatory enjoyment, which is an enjoyment which uh comes out of um seeing that somehow we're all part of something and we have to kind of like take responsibility for that and and the problem is the left has always been really bad at galvanizing that type of emancipatory enjoyment <laughs> uh, the right's always yeah. been better at it because there's something more primal about scapegoating there's a real primal thing now the thing is and i don't think this is where i think todd and i might be slightly different is i think what goes under the term leftist today is right wing in that any scapegoating enjoyment is inherently of the right. That's that's the kind of argument that Todd's making. Is it, it doesn't matter what your politics are. If you can point to a very a group of people who, if you could just wipe them off the face of the planet, everything would be great. I'd say that's that's reactionary enjoyment by definition. Yeah. Um, but but we have to then give an alternative to that. What is what is an emancipatory enjoyment? And that's more difficult. Thinking about that in relation to COVID and how and 9/11 and thinking about how 9/11 there was sort of this like faux unity that happened. I mean, obviously not for everyone, but mm -hmm. it in my experience it was where I was growing up, and uh, it was like, yeah, there's a scapegoat, there's a group of people we have to get rid of. But when COVID with COVID, there's no face, there's no group that you can put with it. So we just made it each other, and we went after one another and the and, you know Fauci or. Uh, Trump or whatever, you know, it was one of these guys' fault, basically. And it's like, yes. we're so, we have to have a, a something to look at and be like, that's the issue right there. Yes. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah for, like for me, like the, the only way to combat that is to somehow enjoy um, looking at your own community or your own individuality and this is the enjoyment of psychoanalysis because when you're in psychoanalysis there is something enjoyable about being on a couch and examining your own past your own unconscious this dimension of yourself that you don't know if if there's no enjoyment you're not going to stay because you have to pay a lot of money for it and it's also very painful and you may cry and you may be upset so but there is an enjoyment in uncovering your own unconscious so in a similar way there is some enjoyment about being able to look at how i am part of the society that i'm in and how i am uh woven into these issues um and i'm not separate from them but uh you know that's a more difficult enjoyment it's a more it's a one you have to work 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 out do you know what's even better than psychoanalysis What's that? Depth psychology? A bath. A bath. <laughs> oh, I was thinking about that the other day. I was like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> like, I think that I out mean, of everything I said, you were like, so Pete, you were sitting in the bath. We, we self-care so, day. Were you just looking after yourself? <laughs> yeah. Let's play the tape back. Let's do a replay on that. 
because you've said that I've known you. I, we used to live together, and you you would quite frequently say like, "I'm in the bath," <laughs> and I'd love that. I just love. I'm like, man, I gotta get into baths. Pete knows something that I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's a secret, man. Do you and not you have can, baths? I gotta get my path fixed. My yeah. lovely wife likes to do home improvement things and then do them halfway, and then uh, I gotta call somebody. But anyway, um, yeah, I do need to do a bath again, and I do hot tubs. That's my thing. But um, oh, you know, yes. I, I love a good hot tub, and I find that whatever kind of body of water you're in, it's great for like you're talking about that feeling of when you're uncovering. Uh, something about the unconscious and you're going, oh, there's an insight into my behavior I didn't previously realize. And it's fun. I think it's so like, we, we don't give enough credit to how much fun it is, uh, even if it's in a narcissistic way when we go to therapy and they're like, oh, did you think that maybe the reason you're doing it, it's because of that? You're like, oh, cool. It's very creative yeah. sometimes in my opinion. Yeah. And, and, the, and called, the difference then? Oh, good. Please, oh, no, please I was just... I was just going to say, and the difference between then what happens in psychoanalysis and what happens in, say, postmodernism is in postmodernism, the, the nothing is always ahead of you. So it's very Jewish in the sense of very messianic, right? You're waiting for the Messiah to arrive. The Messiah never arrives, but you cultivate this eternal openness to the incoming of what will never arrive. Uh, for psychoanalysis, um, the this dimension of the unknown has arrived. <laughs> it's there and it's called the yeah. unconscious. It's not something that's coming. It's, it's in you. It's a, it's, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a hole. It's a black hole that is within you. And maybe that simplifies it a bit, but I think it's a good way to initially understand the difference. And I used to, I was very influenced by this idea of this openness to the never ending future. But uh, the more I read psychoanalysis and the unconscious, I was going, no, 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 this unknown is not not something in the future. This unknown is here. And that, there's, a there's a Christological dimension to that, which is the Messiah is here, and you still can't grasp him. So they wait for another Messiah. You know, so it's, a, it's the arrival, and that's what psychoanalysis is. It's going, no, you, you have a dimension of the unknown right in your heart. It, I'd like to use the... Uh analogy of like the difference between one and infinity and then the infinity between one and two like the, oh, there's yeah. no like like the middle numbers those decimal points you can keep going and going and going and still never reach the end but then there's two still it's crazy how do numbers work pete let's a different episode yes. um all right so Th that's a great man, analogy just... that's a great analogy but that the, yeah the, tr the <sighs> those the infinites between one and two and so yeah so like almost like say Postmodernism is like the infinite that goes on forever, and and psychoanalysis is like yeah. the infinite that's within. Yeah, yep. Fissures. Um. Yeah. I. Uh. Man, dude. I feel like I have just. Apologies to everyone who's who's listened to this. I'm all over the place on this episode, and so thank you for carrying it so well. Um. Well, no, I want to apologize because I thought I was a bit all over the place, and also, yeah, getting a bit. It was all coming back to yeah. me, so I was kind of throwing in things and then yeah. structuralism and all of that, you know. But <laughs> um, it's a lot of words. It's dense, but man, dude, I mean, you know your stuff. It's so fun because it's like um, it's like a real life chat GPT where I can uh, <laughs> just ask you, and it'll be like, well, it's this, 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 and this. 
very specific. I was probably all ChatGPT. wrong. Yeah, I'm as wrong as ChatGPT, uh, more wrong than ChatGPT. And I've been trying, ChatGPT is brilliant and then just suddenly gets things incredibly wrong. It's so weird. Yeah. Um, it's getting worse, I think. I've found that it's um, too afraid to be wrong and too afraid to, it's getting like overly timid. And it's very timid because it, yeah, it yeah. agrees with me all the time. And I would say, I'd say, I'd ask it something and it's trying to agree with me. And I'd go, well, are you sure that's right? Like I've had a couple of times where I've asked it something about has, uh, you know, I was asking the question about this philosopher Deleuze and where he got this phrase body without organs. I knew it was a French guy and I just couldn't remember his name. And he was going, oh yeah, it, 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 he just made it up. And I'm going, I'm sure he didn't. And and it goes, oh, and then it, I basically had to tease it out of ChatGPT, but it just seemed like it didn't want to offend me. Very weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've had that worth like trying to find a quote or trying to find like where in something, something is located, what book a uh, particular quote is. And it'll be like, oh, it's in this book. And I'll look it up. Like it'll be like the in the Jung's collected works, I'm not, I'm not gonna read that, you know, ever. Uh, so I'll look it up, what ChatGPT says, it'll be dead wrong. And I'll be like, it's not in there. And I'll be like, oh, my mistake, it's it's over here instead. I'm like, all right, cool. Yeah, it's very anyway. weird, yeah. Um, all right, well, any final thoughts on postmodernism? I know this is kind of like a quick, uh, thank you ma'am, one and done thing, but um, I yeah. know, for such a big topic, uh, I I feel like I have a slightly better grasp on it, but I also feel like I've just um, really dropped the ball on this episode. So, no. but that's just mostly my frenetic, caffeinated brain. I think, yeah, not, not the fact that you did anything wrong. Pete. You Thank you. Did. Well, I I would love us to do. I think it would be really fun to. Uh, do that narrative of the kind of Marxism, the postmodernism to identity politics someday. I'd love to chart that. So that would be, be fun to do. But uh, my takeaway, yes, on this little uh, episode, um, I'm about to do a retreat, so I feel like my mind hasn't been fully in it, but we'll still put it up, um, is uh, just that postmodernism, and uh, you, uh, you brought this out, it's, it was kind of like partly grew out of uh, skepticism about grand stories about reality and how these grand stories of justice uh, can become unjust and opening up a kind of politics that doesn't try to uh, totalize the world but is always open to new understanding, understandings and new possibilities and that's a good way of thinking about postmodernism if someone doesn't want to study it it's just this this openness to the future that um, sees what we currently understand about justice and hospitality and love as important and as significant, but that these terms always carry within them a promise of something that still hasn't been delivered. And what someone like Derrida would say, and it's beautiful, is that almost like for him, the religious figure is the one who is eternally open to that promise and that possibility. And when we close ourselves off from that possibility and that promise, that damages us and it damages the people around us. We become rigid. And there's something about trying to always remain open to, to what is to come. And that's and until the day that we die. So, yeah. Yeah, because that we know is coming. That one, the death is yes. the big one, right? Death and then is we coming. get the answers. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was thinking about in terms of just academia, the sort of, a grand narrative of academia is 
uh, a picture of them being entirely postmodern all the time, and uh, it just seems like a very myopic view of a institution that is filled with supposed to be filled with all of these different perspectives. And I think that's still going on, maybe not to the degree that people would like, but um, it's interesting that postmodernism is like the, the idea of academia has a grand narrative that it is only about the postmodernists. And it seems like there's a bunch of people who are offering different perspectives these days. And I think that's cool. Mm, yeah. Very true. Very okay. true. Yeah. Well, that's my, that's what I offered. I apologize to everyone for who I am. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> See ya. Bye. All right, bye, everybody. <laughs>